The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Are you building a renewable power plant? Looking for a battery storage system? Thinking about how to integrate renewables onto your grid? Hitachi ABB Power Grids is your choice. Meet your goals, unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, lower carbon emissions. All with Power Grids innovative control and automation technology. For more, visit the link right there in the show notes. The Interchange is also brought to you by Long E Solar, the world's leading solar technology company. Long E supplies high-efficiency monocrystalline solar modules to all market segments and project types in the U.S. A global market leader, Long E has unmatched bankability, quality, and performance validated by third-party laboratories and has a breakthrough innovation at both the wafer and module level. With Long E products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. It's deja vu. It's, it's back to 2018 solar. You know, we're seeing incentive structures in certain parts of the world that are fundamentally unsustainable, but are kickstarting a lot of interest in building an industry. Will the next 15 years in the hydrogen market look like the last 15 in the solar market? This is The Interchange. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. Okay, so here's a snapshot of where solar photovoltaics were 15 years ago. Globally, that year, 2006, we installed one and a half gigawatts globally, and the average price of a solar module, a panel, was about $3.50 a watt, $3.50. And at the time, there was a ton of hype around this market. Investors were starting to pile in. Government incentives had shown up. There were hundreds of companies being spun up, and it was a very hypey market at the time. And then here's what happened in the 15 years since. The size of the market, as measured in annual new solar installations, grew over 100 times. We'll install roughly 150 gigawatts this year, up from that one and a half gigawatts 15 years ago. And meanwhile, the price of a PV module fell something like 94%. Spot prices for PV modules are now down close to 20 cents a watt, down from that 350 in 2006. So it's been a pretty incredible ride. But it's also important to remember that this rising tide of the solar market did not ultimately lift all boats. Although the market itself proved to be stronger than almost anyone expected, the road to solar glory has been littered with failed companies. The ones that you may know, cough, cough, Solyndra, and literally hundreds that you don't. In fact, on the module technology side, there have been very few Western companies that have survived the price pressure, commoditization, and trade dynamics that the solar industry has faced as it grew. But one of the few that has lasted, and really the only one with the differentiated module technology, is First Solar, the world's leading thin film solar company based in Arizona in the US. This brings us to hydrogen. So I've been arguing for a while that the state of hydrogen today looks a lot like solar did roughly 15 years ago. We're at a similar phase of the market and technological maturity. We're facing similar levels of hype and corresponding fears of overhype. And the market is buzzing with similar excitement. And particularly in this case, buzzing with lots of new technology companies ready to take over their market with their own special clean hydrogen production process. 
So let's see if we can take some lessons from Solar's experience. Rafi Garabedian, who's this week's guest, had a front row view of this solar story and actually a pretty big role in how it played out because he was the CTO of First Solar for most of the last decade. He ultimately left First Solar to co-found a hydrogen technology company along with co-founders including his predecessor from First Solar and Tesla's former director of engineering. This new company is called Electric Hydrogen and I should note that we just announced that I led an investment in the company for EIP. So needless to say, I can't pretend to be biased on this one. But rather than talking to Rafi about exactly what electric hydrogen is doing, I wanted to spend most of this conversation talking about his experience at First Solar and the lessons that we should take from it as we head into this brave new hydrogen world. So with no further ado, my conversation with Rafi. Rafi, welcome. Hey, Shale. How are you? I'm doing well. It's nice to have you here. It's great to be here. I want to start with a little bit of history. Let's talk about your history in the solar market. So when did you first get into solar? I got into solar in 2008, which is, well, it's a long time ago in solar years. It is uh, basically an eternity. But so, okay, paint me a picture. 2008 was, that was kind of right in the like really hypey period of solar, right? This is when like investment flows were maybe peaking. It totally was. Uh, Silicon Valley was all at Twitter with um, CIGS and all sorts of startups uh, trying to make solar panels cheaper. Um, the market was booming in Germany. Yeah, it was a big deal. And so what was your impression of the market at that time? Like what was happening? And you you entered solar by going to First Solar, right? It was your... That was your entree into the solar world. Yeah, I was recruited into First Solar um, by a guy who's now my co-founder at uh, Electric Hydrogen uh, by the name of Dave Eaglesham. He pulled me into the company. Um, I was running a startup in LA at the time. Uh, it was a, a, an, an amazing time to get into solar. You know, it's, it's a technology that I had known about for decades, of course, and kind of a semiconductor guy, but never really thought much about the application. You know, at the time, uh, for a lot of us, solar was kind of off-grid, small-scale scale applications. Maybe maybe some rich people along the coast were putting them on their roofs. You know, it was a, a hood ornament for rich people, right, for their houses. Or um, or maybe, you know, yeah, it, 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 was, it was niche. And when I saw First Solar and heard the story, I started to realize, whoa, wait a minute, maybe there's something really here. I mean, this is, this is for real. Uh, and it turned out, that was the case. What made you think that? And was that, was it, there's something here, this is for real specific to First Solar, or was it like, oh, wait a minute, solar as a whole more solar, has something real? Yeah, more solar as, as a whole. But then um, as I heard more about First Solar, the thing that resonated the most for me was the manufacturing side of the story. So this was a company that at the time was kind of monomaniacally focused on scale and cost. And that made a lot of sense to me because thinking through solar kind of from first principles, it's, um, it's a product that produces maybe the world's ultimate commodity, right? Kilowatt hours. So being a commodity producing product, it would have to be cheap and plentiful. Uh, and, and that was really the core of the first solar story. Yeah. Let's go into that maybe a little bit more because there was, so at this time, it's 2008, Crystal and Silicon is already the sort of predominant technology has the majority of the market 
for for solar. With that said, where a lot of the new excitement is going at that time is into a class of thin, different thin film technologies. You mentioned CIGS. First solar was was cadmium telluride. So there's a few like upstart incumbent technologies trying to take on the king of crystalline silicon. We hadn't yet seen the the real like full ramp up of manufacturing scale in China of crystalline silicon that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but there were a bunch of different approaches to like, what is the right way to build a solar technology business? And I think you're right. The first solar's differentiation, apart from its technology itself, was like, we are going for large scale, high volume manufacturing. So like, what was the insight that drove that? And then how does that actually manifest inside of a company? Like, what are decisions you make if that's your focus, as opposed to, I don't know, we're going to go after rooftop, for example? Yeah, it's a great question, Shale. Um, yeah, you know, Christian Silicon had been around, I think, since the 50s. Uh, and from a should-cost perspective, you know, those of us in technology and manufacturing, we think about what things should cost, not what they're priced at, uh, because that's an indicator of ultimately where the asymptote and cost could go um, when margins are reduced and volumes are very high and you've gone down the learning curve. Uh, from a should-cost perspective, it was thought at the time and, and actually clear at the time that crystalline silicon built the way it had been built, um, over the decades had a relatively high should cost. So it was a high performance product, but growing crystals of silicon is expensive. Processing those crystals using semiconductor like processes in clean rooms is expensive to make cells. And you know, that all ultimately trickles down to the cost of the kilowatt hours produced. And the thesis around thin film was, again, from first principles, use a lot less material and apply the material in a form that's extremely um, high throughput that ultimately can result in a much lower production cost. Now, what was unique about First Solar's technology choice at the time, this material you mentioned, cadmium telluride, is that the process for producing these solar panels was extremely robust. Now, what does robust mean? In, in manufacturing terms, robust means um, insensitive to variation, insensitive to unwanted inputs. And the first time I visited a first solar facility, that's what I saw. I didn't see a clean room. What I saw was a huge building, open ceiling, high, you know, high industrial ceilings, and literally catwalks going over the product, moving on conveyor belts between pieces of equipment. It looked more like an automotive glass processing facility than a semiconductor facility. And that speaks to very low cost, right? So that's, that's what was inherently attractive about, about First Solar. Right. And in some ways, that was the attraction about a lot of the thin film technologies that were being pursued at the time. But let's, um, let's snap forward in time then to 12 years later, the point at which you ultimately leave the solar industry, enter the hydrogen market, which we'll talk more about in a bit. But what happened over those 12 years in the market? And then what was First Solar's role in that? Well, you know, in those, in those early years, as I mentioned, the German feed-in tariff was driving the industry forward. The, the, the primary source of demand in 2008 was, was European demand. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of, we, we had the feeling at the time that that type of demand, though um, very important in terms of kickstarting the industry, was ultimately not sustainable. Why not sustainable? Because it was simply too expensive. 
the the additional price being paid for solar energy on German rooftops was ultimately not going to be well borne by the the German taxpayer in the long term. And we we saw that transpire. We saw a kind of um, uh, boom bust dynamics in the European markets, uh, in Germany, in Spain, in Italy. We saw China make a decision. I think at a national level, as I think back on that period of time, to uh, to enter this market of producing solar modules and frankly, to dominate the industry. So there was a very, very concerted funding effort within China, again, at the national level, at a policy level, which produced a crop of solar manufacturers who were able to scale very rapidly using MeToo technology, technology borrowed or purchased actually from the Europeans and the American uh, equipment manufacturers and to replicate those tool sets in extremely high volume domestically and produce modules at prices that the Western companies simply couldn't compete with. Okay, so you enter the solar industry at First Solar in 2008. In 2012, you become CTO of the company. And if I recall, by that point, a bunch of this stuff is clear. Like costs have started to fall, um, pretty rapidly. They haven't fallen nearly as far as they ultimately will, but they've, you know, costs for solar are falling fast. Meanwhile, it is clear that the incentive structures in Europe are volatile, though they still exist and they're still driving most of the market. But most importantly, China has made a decision to ramp up domestic manufacturing of crystalline silicon solar panels and that it's going to drive substantial cost declines that you're going to have to contend with. Was all of that pretty much clear at the time when you became CTO? Yeah, Shale, except I think we weren't so clear that the cost declines of the future would be as aggressive and as long-lived as what really transpired. But other than that, I think I would agree with you. That's, that's how the situation felt at the time. Right. Yeah, I don't think anybody, almost anybody quite predicted the scale of the cost declines. But I still don't believe it, honestly. It is hard to believe. I mean, 20 cent modules, 20 cent a watt modules is insane by historical standards. So I remember very distinctly shortly after joining Shell um, that First Solar's executive team was talking about passing $1 a watt, right? That, that, was, that, was a, that was as far as our imagination could go. That was an incredible achievement. And uh, it, was, it was the Holy, Holy Grail. Grail. That was right. considered the That's Holy right. Grail. All right. Well, so then, so that's 2012. So some of that is clear, the magnitude of it, maybe not yet. But then you have to spend the next eight years uh, while you're sitting at, at the CTO role at First Solar, basically keeping the company in a in a leading position in a market that is facing these dramatic cost declines and manufacturing scale up in China. And I'm interested to understand, like, what does it actually mean to do that? What are the decisions that you have to make and how do you have to think about the market in order to stay competitive? Because I think that's going to play out in a host of new sectors over the next decade or two. From the inside of a company, it's as much about leadership as it is about technology, to be quite honest. And, you know, at, at First Solar, we, we, had, we, we had and still have an amazing team of, um, of professionals not just in science and technology, but let's focus there because that, that was my domain. In, in the technical team, we had incredible talent and we had concentrated 
that talent in one location, largely speaking, um, which is Perrysburg, Ohio, a, a suburb of Toledo, um, an, an obscure place to have uh, kind of the world's uh, leading experts in cadmium telluride thin film manufacturing all piled together. Uh, we also had an offshoot, uh, a smaller team in, in Santa Clara, California. But let's focus on Perrysburg because that's where the action is. The, um, the team in Perrysburg had a lot more capability to push the technology forward on critical parameters that ultimately drive cost than I believe they even knew. And part of the trick here is, is actually presenting that challenge in the right way and motivating really smart people to actually apply themselves, to run after what you think can be done. Not what's proven, not what's in hand, not what's 100% de-risked, but what can be done, the art, of the, the art of the possible. At the time around 2012, the mantra in solar was efficiency, right? The way you drive cost down is by increasing efficiency because cost is measured on a dollar per watt produced basis, right? And th that's still the case. Efficiency is the strongest lever in driving cost. Uh, and so, you know, part of what we, we did is to continue to leave no stone unturned, to try new chemistries, new processes, new things, most of which didn't work, right? So in, in R&D, there's this concept of, a, of an R&D funnel and you fill the funnel. It's just like a sales funnel, right? You fill the funnel at the top. There's a lot of stuff that falls uh, falls out of the funnel on the sides that spills out that doesn't work, but eventually you, you come down to the critical few that have the right attributes to implement. The, the other thing we did during that time period is to institute and implement a very methodical process for rapidly introducing change into the manufacturing fleet without taking undue risk. And that's a critical piece of it. Um, it's super hard to achieve in a technology that's highly integrated. The thing about cadmium telluride is you make a change in one little place of the process, you turn a knob here and unexpected things can happen someplace else in the process. Um, and so vetting those changes that you wanna make and guaranteeing that they're not gonna result in some latent issue down the road, that takes discipline. And so we, we built the machinery to have that discipline and to allow ourselves to, to innovate and incrementally improve very quickly. And so you kind of set up this, this culture of innovate. I hate yeah. this term culture of innovation. Right. I like hate it as I'm saying yeah. it, but nonetheless, you know, like you imbue in the, in the R and D team, the capacity and the drive to, to be really innovative and a process to then take those innovations and drive them into the manufacturing process relatively quickly. My sense is that that gets you part of the way there. That gets you sort of constant incremental improvement on the technology. But you also had to make some more dramatic moves, I think, at various points in for solar's technology history. Is that right? Yeah. So I agree with you. Culture of innovation, that's motherhead apple pie. It doesn't say too much. Um, the The real nugget, though, is to create systems which which lift the burden of risk from creative people's shoulders so that they can be creative and can architect change without having to bear the risk on, on their own. And so that's maybe a long, complicated way of saying what we did, um, but, but a very important 
point if you're running an R&D operation um, in, in a technology domain. The first solar's history is full of kind of important decisions and big transitions. Uh, I remember, I don't remember the year exactly, but at one point fairly early on in my tenure as CTO, we had the opportunity to join forces with General Electric, which at the time was the only other company really credibly pursuing cadmium telluride, not in production, but in R&D. And if you look at you know, the NREL record efficiency chart for solar cells, it's a famous chart. Um, I know you know it well, Shell. Uh, you'll see there's a period of time when on the CAD-TEL line, it was, it was General Electric for solar, GE for solar, GE for solar. We were, we were doing hopscotch. We had the opportunity to acquire their technology platform and collaborate with them without really too much insight into what was underneath the, underneath the hood there. Right. So, so when you're dealing with two companies like this for solar and general electric, there's, there's a lot of um, complexity in disclosing what we're each doing and deciding whether that kind of a, a marriage or partnership can make sense. And so we were in a position where we had to take a gamble and the gamble was not taken necessarily in, uh, um, in a, in a way that was based on, uh, you know, knowledge of specific performance parameters or, gee, you guys have this little piece of technology and we can assess the value of it. It was really more on the basis of the teams and the strengths of the teams and uh, to a degree, uh, confidence that the two teams had been mining different veins of technology uh, and, and uh, imagining that the combination of those two efforts could result in, in dividends. And in fact, it did. Uh, so, you know, years ago, First Solar introduced a new element into the CADTEL material system that hadn't been in production before, selenium, as, a, as an additive uh, into, the, into the system. And, uh, and it, was, um, it was the underlying foundation of a long sequence of technology improvements that we introduced into the manufacturing fleet over a period of about five years. That makes me think of another thing we haven't talked about. You, you mentioned mining different veins around cost reduction. I think that could apply both in the context of, look, you, you, you know, First Solar and GE were both manu trying to manufacture cadmium telluride solar panels. So there's different veins to mine just in the context of making the same sort of core product. The other thing that's happened in solar, obviously, is that the innovation has gone well beyond the module. Ultimately, the cost of electricity borne by solar is the cost of the system, itself. And it has turned out that as solar modules have gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, more and more focus has been placed on everything else. And what matters at the end of the day is the cost of the delivered solar, not the cost of the panel. And that also seems like that was a realization First Solar had relatively early, that there are lots of veins to mine, both in the core technology and then beyond it's a, it. It's a, it's a, a great insight, Shale, and, and absolutely true. So picking the right, you know, Part of the R&D challenge is picking the right metrics to drive uh, because metrics, if, you're, if they're well chosen, they can result in really strong business outcomes. If they're not well chosen, they can result in unanticipated uh, negative consequences. So efficiency is an obvious metric that one wants to drive in the solar industry. Um, LCOE is complicated. Right. It's, it's a simple term, levelized cost of energy, but all the various bits and pieces that go into it create a lot of tech, uh, a lot of complication 
in terms of understanding what parameters physically to change in the product. If, if a customer has a radically different cost of capital, that might tilt you towards a different solution at the system level. You know, a great example is that um, single axis trackers make a lot of economic sense in places like the United States, where the energy is worth more and the cost of capital is relatively low. Whereas you go to a place like India, where the energy is not worth much and the cost of capital is high and trackers aren't very common. People build fixed tilt systems. So metrics like LCOE were never very interesting. They weren't very actionable in terms of driving product development processes. Um, the fact that First Solar had a very robust project development business, on the other hand, gave us tremendous insight into what matters. And that insight resulted in module technology changes, which also had very strong business implications. Notably, uh, the transition from series four module technology, which was a two by four foot module to series six module technology, uh, which is a, um, a two, two meter by 1.2 meter module, um, was driven not just by cost per watt reduction targets, but also by the value that that form factor created, uh, vis-a-vis -vis reduction in labor cost and structure costs in the field. Um, those insights were not necessarily obvious without the benefit of understanding project finance and EPC costs, which comes from having a project development business. That's also the transition from series four to series six. I mean, it's, it's a bit in the weeds maybe for those, anybody besides folks like us who were like paying a lot of attention to solar in those years. But it's also, I think, a really good example of the types of decisions that you have to make to stay competitive in this market. I mean, you know, even just on its face, obviously going from series four to series six implies there was something in the middle there that didn't happen. So my, my recollection is that like, that was a dramatic, perhaps existential decision that first solar made to make that oh, switch. It's so like, what, what drove You're bringing that? up painful memories. There was a series five module and the series five product was three series four products glued together onto some rails. So why was that? Um, at the, at that point in time, uh, we were starting to appreciate as module prices got lower and lower and lower, we were starting to appreciate more and more that the structure costs and the material handling costs in the field. So EPC labor costs were starting to become more and more dominant in the overall LCOE and project economics. And that started to put pressure on the concept of having small modules with a lot more handling and a lot more physical kind of clips and structures to hold them. Remember this series four module for solar wonks, uh, solar wonks will remember, but some of you might not. The series four module was a glass glass module without a frame. So it needed special clips, rubber, rubberized metal clips to hold it onto the, the mechanical structure underneath it. Um, all of that implies labor and, and cost. As that cost started to become more important, um, we, we came to the realization we have to fix it. And, uh, and that's where series five was born. Um, a simple approach of just taking three small modules, gluing them together and making a larger handleable unit. Well, it turned out that wasn't the greatest idea. It was indeed cheaper than handling individual small modules, but not cheaper enough to, to 
make the difference. And it involved a very significant capital outlay to build the production facilities to do that post-processing. We, we had that realization about a year, year and a half into that project and took the very, um, the very painful decision to rip and replace our, our factories writ large all the way back to the semiconductor deposition step and retool the entire company with the series six module form factor. Um, we took a big risk in tearing down factories literally removing every piece of equipment from the factory floor down to a clean concrete floor and rebuilding from scratch in a time frame that I think from the inside seemed extremely ambitious. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, I think also from the outside, uh, some people didn't think we'd succeed in doing it, uh, but it, we, we did succeed. We persevered and over a period of about three years, retooled the entire factory fleet from series four to series six. It was existential in the sense that had we not achieved it properly, had we not hit the cost points and the operational capability and efficiency, the yields and throughputs that we predicted and designed, uh, it could have been a very bad outcome for the company. Luckily, history, uh, history supports us in our decision. So yeah, that's exactly the example that I was thinking of. And, and ex one example among many, I think, of like the things that it takes. If you're going to build a high volume manufacturing business in a market that is even semi-commoditized or where there's commodity competition from low cost regions, you just have to be cutthroat about the decisions that you make and, and think, you know, two steps ahead at all times. Absolutely. That's exactly what it takes, Shale. You have to always be thinking ahead. You have to be paranoid. I think Andy Grove coined that term, the paranoid survive. And and in an industry like solar, it is absolutely true. And I would extend that to any technology manufacturing industry that serves large industrial commodity and applications. The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Energy resilience is important everywhere. Yet imagine living near the Arctic Circle. Reliable power makes daily life possible, and Hitachi ABB Power Grid's battery energy storage system prevents power outages for communities outside Fairbanks. In fact, the innovative system holds the Guinness record for the world's most powerful battery. No matter where you are, energy storage can improve resilience and efficiency, offer greater user availability with smart grid technology, integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals, lower electricity bills by reducing load and peak shaving. It's all achievable with energy storage solutions. Learn more about stacking value with energy storage solutions through ABB Power Grids. Follow the link right there in the show notes. We are also brought to you by Longy. Longy is the world's most valuable solar company with a market capitalization of $8.4 billion. It supplies more than 80 gigawatts of solar wafers and modules worldwide each year, about a quarter of global market demand. Longy's modules lead in efficiency and are validated through rigorous testing at leading independent labs and has multiple top awards from testing agencies. With sustainability front and center, Longy partners with the Climate Group and other sustainability leaders pledging to be 100% powered by renewables by 2028. With Longy products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. So I think, uh, and I think you agree, that there are a bunch of lessons to be taken from what's happened over the last 15 years in solar that 
we should be thinking about and applying to a host of new sectors that we care about in this world of decarbonization. We'll talk more about hydrogen, but you know, some of this stuff can apply to like direct air capture and a bunch of other emergent sectors. So a couple of areas that I would be keen to get your kind of lessons learned in short form. We already talked a little bit about how do you how do you stay competitive if you're a non-commoditized Chinese manufacturer in a market that is dominated by them or becomes increasingly dominated by them. And I think that may be true, in fact, of a bunch of these emerging sectors. But another one is just high level solar costs over and over and over and over again fell faster than anyone expected them to. And you know, those of us who are on the outside, like being the ones forced to forecast these costs, we're constantly underestimating the pace of cost decline. First of all, why did that happen in solar? And second of all, if you're on the inside of the company, how do you account for that possibility? You know, I got to tell you, Shale, I was a chief technology officer for solar for eight years. And I, I, I can't even recall how many times I caught myself being wrong about the pricing power and cost potential of the high volume Chinese kind of learning machine, manufacturing machine in the solar industry. It's awfully tempting to look at manufacturing cost models from the Western perspective and assume that we understand the ultimate floor of cost of producing a a product at very high volume. Uh, In fact, what what I learned from, from these experiences, from being wrong over and over again, is that there's tremendous creativity and human energy that goes into driving down cost. And once, once, once you accept that, you can start to see that um, what you might have thought was unimaginable can be achieved. So the lesson, the lesson for me is to not underappreciate or underestimate the, uh, the cost down potential of technologies that can be produced at scale um, and, the, and the power of learning curve and competition. All right. Another area that I think was interesting uh, dynamic that played out over the course of 12, 15 years in solar was um, manufacturers like for solar, but also like Sun Power, like some of the big Chinese manufacturers, at various times being fully integrated downstream, in other words, also developing their own projects, at other times seeming to want to be just in the business of selling their product, solar modules. How did that play out? And do you take any lessons from that about what is the right way to integrate if you're at various stages of a market's maturity? You know, I was lucky enough to be at First Solar when the company made the decision to get into project development in the U.S. And in hindsight, uh, I think it was a really fortuitous and well thought through decision. The, um, the approach to the market uh, has to be driven by the constraints in the market. And there's nothing better as a manufacturer than controlling your own destiny vis-a-vis providing demand for your, for your manufacturing fleet to drive down costs and maintain productivity. That, that was the thinking in terms of getting into project development. Um, the, the outcome kind of, uh, supported the, the thesis really, really well. Um, ultimately we developed and for a while we were the biggest developer in the United States and, uh, and put a lot of gigawatts, uh, I lost track of how many, uh, gigawatts of, of solar on the ground. And, um, 
and made money in, in the process, but just as importantly, provided that buffer in demand to maintain our factory fleet's operational efficiency. All right, one more lesson, and then we can move on to what's next. Um, the other thing that is sort of unique about First Solar is it's really the only non-crystalline silicon technology to have survived and scaled through this entire period. There were literally hundreds at the time when you started. I mean, we at some point... Back when I was at GTM, we were like counting all the upstart thin film companies. It was were well over actually, 100. There were actually hundreds? I, I think so. Well, for a while, um, you know, there was this sort of like third tier Chinese uh, organic PV and and like some little upstart uh, cadre of a bunch of companies. So they never really got anywhere, but I do think it was, there was over 100 attempts at it, at least. Nonetheless, whatever the number is, it was a lot. And basically only one survived. And so um, my question there is like, what is what is the lesson? How do you compete with a novel technology uh, when you are competing against a dominant technology selling into the same market? Yeah, um, Shale, it, it's, uh, I wish I could distill it down to a single secret, but um, I, I think I have to say it comes down to making the right technology choices at the foundation and then a lot of hard work. Just a willingness to 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 put in the effort. Um, we we survived and have continued to push CADTEL, and the company still continues to push CADTEL technology way past where people thought it could go. And that's through steady investment in R and D and um, moving fast and being nimble, taking appropriate risks, and um, and really committing yourself to the to the program of of uh, keeping the technology moving forward. You can't waver. You can't be wishy-washy. Right. Like all, all these things, you know, the the ripping up the manufacturing lines to switch to the Series 6, the downstream integration becoming the largest product developer in North America. Like these were all pretty significant strategic moves that the company made that in retrospect look great. It survived. Um, but also, as you said before, sort of existential. Any given one of them, if it hadn't gone right, could have could have been the end for solar because indeed it was the end of many, many other companies in the same market. Absolutely, Shale. I mean, that's, that's one of the, that's one of the, the facts about solar history, at least as it's been written so far. Um, it's, uh, the, the road to, to where we are today, which is, you know, among, if not the cheapest energy resource in the world, among the top cheapest, the top two cheapest, uh, energy resources in the world, that road is littered with a lot of dead bodies and, uh, <laughs> And yeah, First Solar wasn't one of them. Um, a lot of good strategic decisions uh, and, a, and a commitment to, to being a cost leader. You know, this, this focus on pricing power, I think, is, is a key concept, right? When you focus on pricing power, you maintain a cost position. You do everything necessary to maintain a cost position that, um, that allows you to sell below the competition. Uh, and that sounds obvious. It sounds pretty basic. Um, but it's not so basic when you come at the industry from the context of wanting to drive margin, right? So when you come to the industry from the context, for example, of supplying high efficiency modules, um, ideally uh, optimized for rooftop solar, it's a different mindset. You're not thinking so much about pricing power. You're thinking about, um, you're thinking about optimizing the, the earning potential. 
of your, your factory. And that's a different mindset. So when you say thinking about pricing power, you basically mean putting yourself in a position to offer the lowest price full stop? Full stop. All right. Good segue then into the transition that you've made. So in 2020, last year, you left for solar after eight years as, as CTO and co-founded the company that you're the CEO of now, Electric Hydrogen, along with your two co-founders, Dave Eaglesham, who you mentioned before, your predecessor for solar, and Dorian West, uh, who comes from Tesla. Let's just spend a minute on your journey and into the hydrogen world, because I know you coming into this were, you, or you're a self-styled hydrogen skeptic, or at least you were. So what was the initial skepticism and then like what got you over the hump? Yeah, Shell, um, I sure was skeptical. And, uh, you know, being the CTO of a major international solar company, um, part of my job, as you can imagine, was thinking about markets, opportunities to uh, place our technology more broadly. Um, particularly as um, as high penetration locations, grids, California is a great example, uh, started to to experience constraints in the adoption, continued further adoption of solar and wind. Um, we started to scratch our heads and think, "Wow, you know, how do we how do we keep this this moving forward? How do we get more solar out there in the world?" And uh, and hydrogen, you know, has been. Uh, has been spoken of and thought about for for decades now as a means of converting cheap energy into a, f a useful form that can be used in other industries, a vector into other industries. So, having thought about that and studied it, you know, and doing our own internal analysis, my my conclusion over the years, and we re revisited this a number of times, was that it's simply too expensive. It it could be cheap enough in principle to compete with gasoline at the pump, but not cheap enough to compete with oil at the well, the wellhead. And that's a, a critical difference. Uh, remember from the experience of First Solar, um, when we started in the business, the majority of companies were making solar modules to compete against retail energy prices vis-a-vis -vis rooftop feed-in tariff or net metered applications. We resisted that urge on the fundamental principle that it really wasn't a sustainable model for growth in the industry and focused on kind of, you know, the, uh, um, the layer of the beast, if you will, right? The grid and large scale generation. And that turned out to be a, a very effective strategy because, you know, as we've seen over the years, this is, this is where the, ro the growth in the solar industry has been the most robust and the most gigawatts have been placed. Thinking about hydrogen in the same, from the same perspective, taking those lessons in mind, it, uh, it doesn't make much sense to me to focus on being competitive with gasoline at the pump. What I'm really interested in is having an impact at a very large scale, and that means I have to be competitive with fossil resources much, much further upstream. So uh, back to your question, looking at this, um, this kind of pricing power or the levelized cost of hydrogen that resulted um, from solar and wind generation through electrolysis um, uh, to, to a crack in water, it never made sense economically. Our analysis would come up with numbers like six bucks a kilo, 450 a kilo, and, and gee, that's just not all that interesting. Um, one of the great lessons in my career, um, which I took from First Solar, is that in large industrial markets, in commodity markets like energy and 
fuels, the um, price really drives adoption, right? It's, it's nice to think that we would all want to do the right thing and incentives can help kickstart an industry and motivate people to do the right thing. But at some point very quickly, one has to really embrace cost parity. And, uh, and, you know, I couldn't see the way to do that with hydrogen uh, as early as five years ago. Really what's changed since then is the critical question, right? What's changed since then is that with wind and solar prices today, the energy content of hydrogen that's produced via electrolysis can be low enough to ultimately achieve what we call fossil parity which is on the order of $1.50 a kilo for round numbers in the U.S. When I came to that realization, a light bulb kind of turned on in my head. Um, and actually, my, my partner, Dave Eaglesham, helped me get there. The critical missing link to get to hydrogen pricing that's economical is a very, very low-cost electrolysis system that can operate at low capacity factor and high variability meaning it can be operated directly off of solar and wind resources. And, you know, if we can see our way to eliminating that constraint, to providing such a system into the market, then all of a sudden fossil parity hydrogen starts to become a reality. Right. So the, the insight, maybe to repeat it back to you, and you could tell me if this is right, is, look, there are like a couple of primary components to the cost of hydrogen, if it is produced via electrolysis, green hydrogen, as people say. Um, one is the capital cost of the electrolyzer itself. The other is the cost of the electricity, which is your input into the system, your, your predominant portion of your OPEX. And then the third is your conversion efficiency. And sort of what you're saying is that that second one, the cost of the input, has finally reached a point where if you can solve for the other two, the utilization and the cost of the equipment, then you at least can foresee a pathway to true cost parity. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And, and hence enter into the picture um, two former solar CTOs and a engineering leader from Tesla. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, you can imagine the... Uh, the approach that we would like to take um, to to achieve that goal. What's your impression of the hydrogen market today? And particularly comparing it to, you know, you were in solar in 2008, and a lot of people are making comparisons around where hydrogen sits today from a maturity perspective, both on the market and on the manufacturing side, on the technology side, and solar back then, also from a hype perspective. So you've lived both now. What's similar? What's different? Yeah. It's uh, it's deja vu. It's it's back to 2008 in solar. You know, we're seeing incentive structures in certain parts of the world that are fundamentally unsustainable, but are kickstarting a lot of interest in building an industry. Where that will go ultimately, I think, is along the same lines that we saw in solar. So the industry will kickstart, but the incentives will be gradually withdrawn or maybe abruptly withdrawn, like we saw in Europe and solar, and, uh, and the strong will survive. But ultimately, hopefully through that process, we'll see the market mature and come to cost points that actually incent economic adoption of the solution rather than incentive adoption of the solution. There is a lot of hype in this market. Uh, it's very, very frothy. And, you know, my expectation is that over the coming 
three, four years, we're going to see, um, we're going to see a lot of players who are in the space today fail. Yeah. I think that's sort of inevitable. Um, it's, it's one of these like rising tide lifts some boats, but you can't promise that the rising tide is going to lift all boats. So back to the solar example, you know, we talked about how a lot of the decisions that you were making at first solar with regard to the module technology were ultimately driven by the system, everything outside of the module and the decisions that had to be made there, because the metric that mattered there at the end of the day was LCOE, levelized cost of energy. Do you think it's going to be the same thing here in a hydrogen context where the decisions that you make at the you know, electrolyzer level or even beneath the electrolyzer itself, the stack level, the electrochemical process should be driven by all of the other equipment that's going to go into the system and ultimately the levelized cost of hydrogen. Like, is it the same story here? Yeah, Shale, it's the same story and even more so, I would say. It's even more acutely apparent in hydrogen production because the system is considerably more complex, that there are many, many opportunities to co-design and co-optimize at the system level, as opposed to at the component level. So you, you kind of teed this up for me in a really convenient way, right? If we, if we think about the electrochemical stack, this is the bit of electrochemical hardware that water and electricity pass through and oxygen and hydrogen come out as a result. That's the heart of the system, but properly done, it should only represent a relatively small fraction of the total system capital cost. Not only that, but the efficiency losses in that electrochemical stack are only part of the total system efficiency loss. There are pumps and heat exchangers and power converters and transformers and controls and all sorts of things at the system level that also consume power, consume energy, and result in a total system efficiency rather than a stack efficiency. So when you think about your goal as the levelized cost of hydrogen, or maybe even more interestingly, the project economics, the IRR or NPV of a plant that's built using a technology, then you start to look at that whole system as a product rather than a component of the system, the, albeit the heart of the system, the electrochemical stack, as the product. There's a lot of opportunity in that kind of system level thinking. You know, we've, we've seen that kind of approach be extremely powerful um, in other industries, Tesla is a great example of system level thinking about the automobile and the use case for the automobile, really enabling the introduction of consumer grade electric vehicles. Um, the same sort of thinking applies, I think, here. One of the other things that I think is interesting to compare. So, you know, solar at the end of the day, as you said before, produces the ultimate commodity. It just produces electrons. Uh, there was some and remains some debate over the right ultimate sort of end customer for those electrons. In other words, are you putting it on a rooftop or are you putting it in a field ground mount utility scale? But, you know, that that distinction is not enormous. Whereas in the context of hydrogen, as you said, it's an energy vector and there is an enormous amount of debate around which end use sectors it should be applied, that vector should be directed toward, ranging from, you know, light duty transportation on one side to the biggest possible applications, maybe, you know, on the power grid, like gas combustion turbine blending or 
shipping or aviation or some of these other really big sectors. And then there's an existing market, which is largely ammonia and petrochemicals. So how do you think about like the universe of potential applications for hydrogen? And again, taking that sort of first principles approach, what makes sense to you and what doesn't? So, uh, so first, first application that comes to mind is light duty passenger vehicles. Direct electrification of light duty passenger vehicles is, uh, um, is obviously gaining a lot of traction and seems to be a very appropriate and cost competitive solution to the problem. So one would ask the question, what's wrong with that? If that's the lowest cost alternative, why try to replace it with something different? Now, as you go through application segments um, that are talked about in the hydrogen industry, you come across problems that are much, much harder to solve directly with direct electrification. Uh, a great example, one I know that you've spoken recently about is the production of ammonia. At the very large scale, ammonia is produced using the Haber-Bosch chemical process from uh, hydrogen and nitrogen from the air. Uh, and the hydrogen is, is either produced from natural gas or from syngas in, in different parts of the world. Um, resulting in, in a large, uh, large global CO2 footprint, uh, in the process. The hydrogen in that process is a chemical input, not just an energy input and, and hence not amenable to direct electrification, right? So it's a, it's an example of an application, maybe the prime example of an application where you can't solve the problem with direct electrification. And then as we go through various application segments, we see, we see varying difficulty in electrifying and hence a varying value proposition for renewable hydrogen in that domain. You mentioned uh, fuels for, for uh, ocean-going vessels for shipping. Uh, that's an application because of the very high um, durations of, of burn, because of the amount of energy that's needed to be stored on a vessel uh, to get it across the oceans, um, not amenable to battery storage. So chemical storage is, is still the, uh, the only way to solve that problem that we know of. Uh, so another great example. Um, we can also talk about very long duration grid scale storage. So how do you tackle the hundreds of hours, the seasonal storage problem, if we want to truly, uh, truly clean up the entire generating sector? And hydrogen is a, a potential vector to solve that problem as well. What about the role of policy in this? Obviously, that was a, a core driver of kind of this early phase in solar 15 years ago. Is it going to be the same thing in hydrogen? You know, we talked a little bit, uh, Michelle, about policy support um, and how it's been invaluable in establishing kind of new business models, new technologies in infrastructure. I want to underscore that uh, as important as policy is for companies and technologies to really thrive in the future and have a massive impact at the scale of our energy system, the most important factor is cost competitiveness. We've talked a lot about cost today, and I keep on coming back to it, maybe a little bit like a broken record, um, but it's, uh, it's because I truly believe and I've seen the power of cost in driving adoption and scale. All right. So wrapping up, um, if, if today is the equivalent of today's deja vu for 2008 in solar, roughly speaking, 
what does the world of hydrogen look like in five years? This is actually, it's, it's a time period. Like, I feel like I have a clearer picture of hydrogen in 15 years than I do in five. So I wonder what you think happens in over the next five years. You know, what is the equivalent of the 2013, I guess, of, of solar? You know, one of the great advantages we had in solar, um, particularly at the grid scale, was the availability of the grid to connect to. That allowed us an almost, uh, you know, a huge ocean to dribble energy into. Um, and people didn't really notice until we were already scaling and, and going down the cost curve and learning, learning how to make bigger and bigger projects. The hydrogen industry doesn't have the equivalent of the grid. Applications tend to be bespoke and, um, and difficult to penetrate. And so predicting the future of hydrogen on the basis of what we've seen in solar, I think is a little dangerous. We're going to have to think a lot harder about how to build this industry and transition applications like ammonia production or steel production or shipping fuel. Um, each one of them is going to require a different solution. How, how that all evolves over the next five years is, uh, is an interesting question and a journey I'm uh, undertaking now. So I, I, I wish I could answer, but, uh, you know, I hope it's a good story. As do I, for a number of reasons. Um, Rafi, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Shil. Rafi Garabedian is the co-founder and CEO of Electric Hydrogen. Previously, he was the CTO of First Solar. Well, what did you think? As always, give us a rating, a review. Let us know how we're doing on the podcast. We love your feedback. Or you can tweet at us at, at Interchange Show or send us an email to contact at postscriptaudio.com. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Media. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf, Dalvin Abouaji, and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. The Interchange.